After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. I did. I do have a book that just came out, or uh, literally is coming out in January, but you can sort of get it already. And I got an email from the publisher today. Um, in which the editor said something really funny like, it was a quotation from somebody which said something like, just reading about meditation is like trying to scratch an itch through a shoe. <laughs> and first I thought that was kind of a funny comment from a publisher. Um, but also quite true. There's, there's something I find just magical and difficult and extraordinary about taking concepts we may hold really dear and trying to live them. To take what might be more abstract values and uh, very special commitments of the heart and try to make them real. And that's how I see meditation practice. It's almost like this alchemical process of taking something more conceptual and seizing it, and seeing what it can mean for us. It's like breathing life into it. Once I was teaching with Krishnadas, which I get a chance to do, um, a fair amount anyway, and he used this quotation. He said something like, the grace of God is coming down upon us all the time like a gentle rain, but we forget to cup our hands. So I also see meditation process as that kind of cupping of our hands. It's not like a a forceful, strained, weird, um, somehow inauthentic doing, but it's really crafting a container for that which we might better receive. 
And I'll also say it's not always easy as we are here in paradise. I was so glad when Steve said what he said yesterday because sometimes I've had the experience of people entering these extraordinary places of bliss and openness, maybe chanting or doing yoga or listening to Ramdas. And then when I'm working with people and they're looking at their own minds, it's kind of like, eh. That's not so much fun. <laughs> uh, I think the first time I ever really taught with Krishnadas, it was Krishnadas and John Friend, the yoga instructor, and I, uh, many years ago, and that's exactly what happened. People were just like completely blissed out with all that liberation of energy in doing yoga, and of course in the chanting, and they were complaining quite a lot to me about everything they were experiencing. I don't mean to be this doleful. <laughs> it, can be, it can be a lot of fun too, but it's not always, always easy. But anyway, they were really complaining a lot to me about difficult things they were seeing in their meditation practice. And um, one day after lunch, it was like such an avalanche that I, I just went to sleep after lunch. I went to take a nap, and then there was a knock on the door. So... I got up and opened the door, and there were two very young people, like teenagers, who were on staff at this particular place. And uh, one of them, the, the woman, was holding this huge, extraordinary bouquet of flowers, and she handed it to me. And I felt, like, really good. And I was just holding them. And then the guy said, you're Krishnadas, right? <laughs> And I said, well, no, actually, he's in the next cabin. <laughs> so they took it out of my hand and took it away. So I should tell you that I told Krishnadas this story once, and it was just before my birthday, and I was somewhere, and he sent me this big bouquet of flowers with a note that said, these are not for Krishnadas. <laughs> so all of which is to say that I think there's something, clearly something very special that happens in meditation practice, and it's why. The, the array of what one might experience um, is very broad, and it's all okay. That anything might happen, and, and that's perfect, because what we're doing is really not trying to contour our experience and hold on to certain things and push away others, but really open, genuinely, with compassion and presence to everything that might come our way, and it's varied. All kinds of different things might happen, very beautiful, wondrous, extraordinary things, uh, kind of dull periods <laughs> of, of not being that excited or engaged or, or even connected, and times that some uncomfortable things can come up, and it's all really fine. I say that not as solace for the people who can't do the real thing. That is the real thing. So I began my meditation practice in uh, January of 1971. It was years ago. Uh, at a retreat in Bodh Gaya, India. Ramdas was there. Krishnadas was there. Ramesh was there. Um, and one of the things that that teacher said, it was a, an intensive retreat for 10 days, and the first night he said something that was really important for me, which was, 
the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And uh, a somewhat later teacher also said something really important for me when he looked at me and he said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And it was actually, I often get the sense when I say that, that I'm not quite conveying how, how great that was for me, because it, it really was a wonderful moment, because it felt to me like someone was looking at me almost for the first time and saying, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the confusion and the unhappiness that's brought you here to India to begin with. You can do something about this. And uh, it was amazing. And so I did. I really see meditation practice as that cupping of one's hand. It's like a skills training. First of all, a training in concentration so that to the degree we experience ourselves as somewhat scattered or distracted, we learn to gather the energy. We learn to gather our attention so that it's steadier, it's more steadfast. We're really much more cohesive or centered. And that's a big thing, of course, because that's quite a lot of energy we generally have that's not available to us because it's just flying all over the place. Even here, one of the mornings that I was here before most of you got here, and I was sitting at the restaurant having breakfast, looking at the ocean, this bird was hopping on my table, and the temptation to pull out my iPhone was so strong. <laughs> and I thought, I can't do that. <laughs> really, that's like too much. But how often are we just not there? Even when we're in a place like this. Our energy, our attention is just flying all over the place. It goes to the past, goes to the future. What about that shuttle when I leave? What time should I ask for it? But what we do is we actually train in that skill of just gathering the attention together, bringing it together so that we do feel centered and we also feel whole. We feel like knit together because the larger expression of that kind of distractedness is a sense of fragmentation where it's the way we get into role identification or compartmentalizing so that so many people say they feel like they're one person at work and a different person at home. Or somebody, uh, I was teaching somewhere and somebody raised their hand and, and uh, said like the best thing. She said, I feel filled with loving kindness for all beings everywhere as long as I'm alone. But once I'm with others, it's really rough. So, and I love that, because don't we know that? Or it could be the other way around. So easily we might feel fine when we're with others, but feel quite ill at ease being alone. So our lives can be so divided and fragmented. And here we are, bringing it together. So that we can experience the integration of our being. So that's one of the skills we learn in meditation. And we learn skills of mindfulness and presence and mindful awareness as well. So that we're connected to our experience and in a free way. So that we're not necessarily carrying the self-image of old or the, um, the kind of fears or anxieties or, or distress or certainties. 
that we might just be assuming that might not even be true. And Ramnas will tell you a fun story about me. He told it at breakfast to me, but I'll let him do that. There's so many ways in which our minds just spin out. Like, I know what this means, and I know who they are. I know who I am, but really, do we? And so learning to relax some of that, the rigidity of those categories, and to actually look, to pay attention much more fully, to discover for ourselves this feeling, this moment, this person, is the, the nature of mindfulness, to really connect, and without those veils of, of distortion. So we'll practice some of that as well. And then I actually think of meditation as being a kind of skills training in, in love or loving kindness or compassion so that we um, discover both capacities within and the, the nature of the loving heart in ways that might not be the way that we actually just assumed. We might assume quite a bit of limitation or we might assume a lot of conventional mediums of exchange. Even the word love is so confusing for us, generally speaking. What do we mean when we use the word love? Sometimes people do frankly mean a medium of exchange. I will love you as long as you love me in return, as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And I once used that example teaching and someone in the room called out only 15 conditions, so I will love you as long as however many conditions are met. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. So what does that mean, really, in terms of stability, in terms of support, in terms of nurturance or, or nourishment? It's not going to last very long. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. So we're really talking about something very different in terms of connection and understanding and presence and care that can be sustained through all kinds of different circumstances and, and changes. That's the skills training of it. And I think it's very funny because we don't tend to think of that as a skill. We think of it as a gift that some people have it or other people don't. And if you don't, you're out of luck. But here we are, cupping our hands, doing something a little different, sometimes taking some risks with our attention, with our awareness, so that we can see more clearly what we're really capable of or even the, the love that's, that's there. Although I'm trying to remember exactly what Ramdas said yesterday. It was something like, you can't love a psychologist or you can't love a psychotherapist or something like that. That was very funny. <laughs> um, and I was thinking that would make a great t-shirt, except it would probably need a little subtitle or something like that because it's out of context. It's somewhat hard to, to describe. But I also know that because I teach so much loving-kindness meditation, which we'll start t tomorrow to do together, that um, there are a lot of ways, and actually it would be interesting for me to hear from all of you, because I would actually bet it was not so, but 
there are a lot of ways in, when I go around teaching in which people seem to associate having a loving heart with being maybe a little stupid or weak or, or foolish and um, a little gooey. You know, like I'll let myself be hurt or abused and I'll just kind of smile or I'll let other people be treated unjustly and I'll just kind of smile. It's a little too saccharine. But, of course, in reality, love and loving kindness, compassion are like a tremendous force which can transform this world. But we don't live in a time where, generally speaking, it's seen as such. Um, it's sort of a degradation of our understanding of the power of love. You know, but look at Ramdas all these years later talking about that first encounter and what it means to receive that kind of unconditional love. And just as we can open to receiving it, of course we can generate it. At least from the Buddhist point of view, we have that capacity um, to actually generate and be a source of, of that enormous quality of love and acceptance, which is a strength. It's a force. And then maybe the last thing I'll say before we sit is just as something like love is seen as a strength, so is happiness. That instead of our own happiness being seen as kind of selfish or weird or, you know, oh, I'm going to have a good time in Hawaii and then just sort of savor that and forget everybody else. When it's the right kind of happiness and not just endlessly seeking pleasure, it's a tremendous source of generosity and caring and compassion because how else do we have resiliency or resourcefulness and how else do we go on without being depleted and overcome and, and, and just feeling it's, it's like all too much. It's because we can tap into what I call this sense of inner abundance where we can find that place within us which has that capacity and, and we can bring it forth. We can really help it come out. When we can be in touch with that, then our giving is different, our presence is different, our sharing is different, our service is different because it's not forced and it's not gonna shatter. It's not gonna fray when we don't get what we want and someone doesn't improve by tomorrow and all those things maybe don't always go our way. And so our own happiness is a radical thing. It's an extraordinary thing. I speak often about the Dalai Lama in this time. He came to New York City uh, and spoke in Central Park. He's done it a few times, but this was the first time He'd done it. I don't know, maybe some of you were there, actually. All right. <gasps> New Yorker. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine actually organized the, the event in Central Park. And her desire was that all kinds of people would come and that it would just be really big because it was free, there was no registration, and there was also no knowing how many people might come. So... The day before he was going to speak, it 
poured rain, so that was a little disconcerting, but the day he actually was going to speak, it was clear. So I got up that morning and I went to the park, and I couldn't see anything at first, but I could hear the sound of Tibetan chanting in the distance, so I just sort of followed the sound. And turned a corner and came upon the meadow where he was going to speak, and there were an estimated 250,000 people there. It was the most amazing gathering. It's like everywhere the eye could land, you'd just see people. And we sat together in a very rare kind of silence as we waited for him to begin to speak. And when he did begin, he started with a statement I found rather extraordinary. He said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said... I had to assume power, temporal power, when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to live in exile, trying to keep this community intact all these years. I've had to hear daily about the terrible suffering going on inside of Tibet, he said. It hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. And of course, that's what one sees in him. He seems pretty happy. And he went on to say, the reason that I'm pretty happy, even though it hasn't been such an easy life, is because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with everyone. That's why I'm pretty happy. So you think about that. Or another statement of his where he said, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. And just the lack of defensiveness and anxiety and self-preoccupation. Because how do we generally meet people? Sometimes we hardly notice them. It's all about me, right? What do they think of me? Do they like me? How much do they like me? Do they like me more than they've ever liked anyone ever before? <laughs> oh no, I said something stupid. They hate me. Can I change this? Maybe not. Let me go meet someone else. <laughs> you know, it's like we hardly even see them. And contrast that to I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. Or compassion makes me feel at one with everyone. And just the openness of that. That's a pretty happy state, right? So he said, it's the force of compassion that makes me pretty happy even though it hasn't been such an easy life. And it was such an extraordinary statement because there we were, let's say 250,000 people, and I bet a lot of us could have said it hasn't been such an easy life. And not all that many of us might have added, but I'm pretty happy. So there we are. That's our potential. That's the possibility we have as human beings. And for me, certainly, just given how my path has been, meditation practice has been a core element of that. Let's see what we're capable of. Let's see what happens when we're more present. Let's see what happens when we change our relationship to everything that comes up in our experience. So that is our practice. Okay, so there are two core elements to the meditation practice. Uh, one is balance and the other is beginning again. And this is actually what we're practicing. Whatever method or style or, or technique we might be using, we're deepening 
our sense of being balanced, feeling at home in that place of balance, and we're definitely deepening the ability to begin again. So for example, in the tradition in which I've mostly trained in India and Burma, we tend to gather our attention around the feeling of the breath. That's the object. It could, in other schools, be a mantra or visualization or a prayer or many other things. In the particular schools or, or lineages in which I practice, mostly it's the feeling of the breath. As one of my teachers said in describing why, he said, first of all, the breath is very portable. <laughs> if we can practice here in Hawaii, in a pavilion all together, in a somewhat formal sense, like, oh, now I'm going to feel my breath, we can practice anywhere we're breathing standing in line somewhere, sitting in the airplane, being at work. It's very private. It's free in all ways. It's ours. It's independent. No one needs to know you're doing it. You can be at a contentious meeting at work and you don't have to say, oh, excuse me a minute, and open a closet and pull out all this equipment and lay it out and sit down and compose yourself, you're breathing. And as he said, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or a Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. So that's commonly, in this particular school, the object around which we gather our attention. And in this particular school, it's the normal, natural breath. It's not like a pranayama where you're directing the breath in some way, it's just however the breath is appearing. And we are cultivating a balanced relationship to that breath. Sometimes people think, well, if I get a death grip on the breath, my mind won't wander. But actually, of course, it wanders more. Or one of the things I discovered early in my practice, so I had gone to India to learn how to meditate and um, ended up in this intensive 10-day meditation retreat in early January. And when this was actually the first instruction I ever heard, sit down and feel your breath. And I was horribly disappointed. I thought, feel my breath. I came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, extraordinary instruction that's just going to dispel all of my suffering and make me a happy person? I thought, feel my breath. How hard can this be? And it was very hard. Interestingly enough, it wasn't 70,000 breaths before my mind started to wander. It was like two. But one of the things I saw, looking back, was very interesting, was that one of the reasons it was very difficult for me to be with just this breath was because as soon as this breath began, I was sort of mentally leaning forward to get ready for the next 13 or 15. It's like I had to kind of gear up to, to be there. And I realized that was a mental posture I had, not just sitting on a floor in India. That was very much the way I was. I was very frightened, I was very guarded, I was very wary. 
I didn't know what might happen next. A lot had already happened to me in my life, and I felt like I had to be ready for it. So for me, in those days, balance looked like settle back. Let the breath come to you. I used to say to myself, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. Because I had so much performance anxiety, it's like I'd never done it before. It was like, relax. Settle back. Let the breath come to you. Or sometimes we were way too far back. We couldn't care less about what this breath feels like. And we need to come forward a little bit mentally and engage, really feel it. Feel just one breath, fully, completely, without holding back. So we develop a balanced relationship to that object. And this is all very intuitive. I wouldn't want you to sit here and think, am I too far forward? Am I too far back? What am I doing? You know, it's not like that. But sometimes you will know just intuitively and you can just make that kind of shift. So that's the first thing. And then the second and absolutely crucial thing is knowing how to begin again. Because Unless you're very, very special, it won't be 70,000 breaths before your mind starts to wander. It might be five, it might be 10, might be 20, could be one, could be a half, that's not uncommon, and that's okay. Because we say that the most important moment in the meditation practice is the moment you realize you've been distracted. You've been gone for however long, and then comes a moment. That's the moment when we have the chance to be really different. So instead of chastising ourselves and blaming ourselves and haranguing ourselves and hating ourselves, that's the moment. We can have some kindness toward ourselves, gently let go, and begin again. Just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. It's not a sign of failure. It doesn't mean you did it wrong. It doesn't mean you need some kind of um, remedial practice. That's the practice. It's what one of my teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. True. With kindness, with love. And you start again. And if you have to let go and start again, bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath 50 billion times in the space of the next 20 minutes, that's perfectly okay. Because that's the practice. Okay? So let's sit together a little bit. And I'll just guide you through it. Right away they say we can feel some of that balance in our posture. You don't need to be like really stiff and uptight. And at the same time, you don't want to be like way slumped over. So see if your back can be straight, but also relaxed. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And sometimes even before we get to the breath, we just start by listening to sound. Sound of my voice, sound of the birds, whatever it might be. It's a way of relaxing deep inside and just letting our experience come and go. Of course we like certain sounds and we don't like others. 
but we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let it come and let it go. It's like the sound just washes through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body. Bring your attention to your hands. See if you can make that shift from the more conceptual level like fingers to the world of direct sensation, pulsing, throbbing, pressure. You don't have to name those things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath at the nostrils, at the chest, or at the abdomen, wherever it's clearest for you. You can find that place and just rest. The Buddha said, rest your attention lightly like a butterfly resting on a flower. And see if you can feel just one breath. You don't have to be concerned with what's already gone by. You don't have to lean forward for even the very next breath, just this one. And the actual sensations of the breath. If you're at the nostrils, it may be tingling, vibration, warmth, coolness. If at the chest or the abdomen, it may be movement, pressure, stretching, release. Again, not to name them, but feel them. This is where we rest our attention. And if you like, you can use a very quiet mental notation of in, out, or rising, falling to support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. So that your attention really is with those sensations of each breath. And as sounds or images or sensations or emotions arise, if they're not very strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. You're breathing. They can come and go, it doesn't matter. Here it's likened to seeing a friend in a crowd. You don't have to shove aside everybody else and say, go away, you're bothering me. But your interest, your enthusiasm is going, there's my friend. There's the breath, there's the breath. But if something is strong enough to take your attention away or you get lost in thought, you fall asleep, don't worry about it. Remember that the magic moment is the moment when you realize you've been gone. That's the moment. 
where we can practice that kind of kindness toward ourselves. Just let go. doesn't matter. It's really okay. Whatever it was, it's okay. You can let go. Bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. Remember that you can always, always begin again. Doesn't matter how long you've been distracted for. Doesn't matter where your attention has gone. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.